You're listening to Together by AGCI. I'm Marissa Butterworth. Today, I have the opportunity to introduce you to my good friend, Dr. Sarah Yee, here with me to talk about how to advocate for our kids within the school system. Sarah is a wealth of experience and knowledge. She is a former K-8 educator and currently serves on the education team at the Center for Equity and Inclusion in Portland, Oregon. She is a wife and a mom to two adorable little boys. I met Sarah at church years ago when she started volunteering in our kids program and have been so fortunate to be able to stay connected with her. Even before Sarah became Dr. Yi, she has been an advocate for underserved and vulnerable populations. And over the years, I have learned so much from her. I think you will too. Sarah, thank you so much for being willing to jump on the show with me and share your expertise with us today. I um, am so excited. It's seriously such an honor to have you on, and I've been looking forward to this. And um, I just appreciate you getting on and being willing to, to talk about how to advocate for our kids within the school system, which is its own beast, I feel like. It's its own thing. So will you share with us like how um, you became passionate about this work and um, like why I referred to your expertise? Because you're an actual expert, which I always love to have on. It's not just my opinion on something. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Um, I I mean, I always love being in space with you and just having conversations with you. And I feel like we always lose track of time when we, we talk. We do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited to talk about this as well, or just to be able to talk with you in general. I feel the um, same. <laughs> so yeah, I my background is in education. Um, I was in the classroom for about seven to eight years and loved my job. Like just never, never woke up a single day thinking, oh, I don't want to go to work today. Just loved my job so much. And towards the um, last few years that I was in the classroom, I started working with the Oregon Writing Project, which is very equity and social justice based and really just kind of um, not opened my eyes, I want to say, but kind of like unearthed and woke this part of me that was always there. And I just really started to feel like, oh, this is why I love what I do so much. And this is why I want to keep doing what I do. But I kind of want to do it in more of this direction toward equity. And um, I started working on my building equity team and getting involved in um, the district's work with it and just started to feel kind of that passion growing. And so I knew I wanted to go back to school um, and just learn as much as I possibly could, especially like historically where we've come in education with this. And so I went back to school and um, that's when I really took a deep dive into uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion in education and just felt really that it was, this was my calling. Like God was really calling me to do this. And I want, always felt like I loved the influence I had in my own classroom, but man, what could I do if I could influence more than one classroom of students per year? And just knowing that um, I could work with many teachers on this and really um, get 
per, like the parental community involved in that too. And, um, that's what I get to do now. So I actually work for the center for equity and inclusion, and I'm a fellow there right now, but I get to work on their education team and, Uh, We teach a course called the Equity Certificate that we get to train teachers for a full year long. And in that, I also get to work with some pretty large districts here in the Portland area. And um, I do this work because I finally have the parental perspective, too. Yes. When I was teaching, I was not a parent yet. And then I became a parent and I finally saw myself on the other side of that parent-teacher conference table. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I finally see the things that my parents were saying and feeling about, you know, basically their hearts that they were sending to school every day. Yep. Uh, and so I think that just gave me kind of a renewed perspective, but also that's what drives my work now because I want to make my not only my own children's experiences better at school because I'm I've experienced some of the same things that my grandpa had to do with my dad and then my dad had to do with me and that's not okay that Mm -hmm. doesn't sit with well with me uh that 30 something years later I'm still dealing with the same stuff that you know generations ago they had to deal with and I don't if, if nothing else, I want to make that easier on my children with their future children. So that's kind of my why behind the work is that not only am I trying to make it better for my kids that I had in my classroom, but now my biological kids too. Yep. Yeah, I love that. And that's exactly it. So today we're going to talk about two areas that adoptive families often encounter within their school systems. And I think this goes for everyone for sure. Like these are great tips, whether you're an adoptive parent or not, but this is specifically um, about advocating um, for our children because of their race and the bias um, and advocating also because a lot of kids that come home through AGCI have disabilities and unique needs. And um, this is obviously a huge topic to cover. And I don't even think we can cover it in one podcast. I think we're going to have to do this again. (laughs) But I'd love for you to break down kind of both sides of this for us and help kind of just help us navigate how to do this well. So can you talk through um, what some of the signs are that you may need to start stepping in to advocate for your child? And um, especially, not all of our adoptive parents are white, but in the position of being a white parent, um, can advocacy ever create an adverse situation for your child? Um, Like, can you speak kind of to both of those things, like when you need to start stepping in and, and what you may experience that are negative consequences of that, what that might look like. Yeah, for sure. I think that, um, especially if you, this may be your first child or this is your first adoptive child, right? So whether it's your first child and that they they're the child that's brought you into parenting, or if this is your first adoptive child and you have your biological children first who have gone through school first, um, I think in both of those experiences, you're going to have your eyes open to a perspective that you haven't had to experience before. And um, the difficult and challenging piece of that is that 
your heightened awareness won't come until you see things happen through your child Mm. because you will have a very different lived experience than what they're going through. So it's hard to say, okay, I need to heighten my, (laughs) my, my sensitivity, you know, um, when you're not really sure what you're supposed to be looking for. Um, I am friends with quite a few parents who are white and they have either fostered to adopt or adopted, um, both domestically and internationally. And I think a lot of them said that, you know, I thought I was prepared for parenting and in general, parenting is hard and it's just, you're never really ready for it, but that, um, there were things that they never thought would be an issue as an adoptive parent. And I think one of the things that uh, really resonated for me that one of my friends said to me was that uh, she started to just question, wait, was that racist? Wait, was that discrimination? And I think even the fact that that starts to arise is you unconsciously becoming sensitive to these things. And that's great. I think that's a great internal realization of like, I also don't want to gaslight my own child and tell them this isn't, but I'm starting to question all these little things could be racist. These things that are happening to, to my child could be a form of discrimination. And that's because of the bias that their teacher may have towards them that I didn't necessarily have to grow up with but my child is experiencing in real time. So those are perhaps those moments inside that we want to think about. I need to advocate for my child because they don't necessarily have the tools to know what to do yet or what to say. And we're trying to empower them to be able to do that as they grow and as they learn to live in their skin that they're in. Right. Mm -hmm. And and making sure that they're prepared for the things that they're probably going to continue to experience. And it's unfortunate that that's the case, but we also want to make sure as a parent, we're always trying to protect our, our children as much as possible. Right. So advocating for them, but also knowing that you can't advocate for them forever. We have to prepare them. Yep. Yeah. And you have to talk about it with them um, in that. And some of that sometimes is talking through what they're experiencing and and uh, helping them identify what's going on as well. So I love that you're saying that. So even if you know um, that there's a strong chance that your child will, one, either have a disability or two, um, need a unique learning strategy, I, I mean, it can just all feel like too much. And like you were talking about, like whether you're a first time parent or um, this isn't your, you know, first child that you've had, it can overwhelm you because you're learning something new. So what um, first step would you suggest to someone um, that they actually take, you know, as they start navigating this? Yeah. So I'm glad you brought up the disability thing because Um, studies and data show that um, kids of color, especially black and brown kids, tend to be um, recommended for SPED services, special education services, way more than any other race. Yeah, you you told me that before this call and it just, 
it's embarrassing that stuff continues to shock me as, you know, you peel the layers back, but I was genuinely (laughs) shocked. So keep going. I'm sorry I interrupted, but that just did my heart in a little bit. Yeah. And that's all driven by that root of bias, right? Mm -hmm. And just thinking about, you know, how, uh, a child's behavior presents to a teacher in some, in most cases, right? Cause 85% of our teaching force here in America is white. Yeah. So, um, the white bias of, oh, is this behavior actually because this child has ADHD or is this behavior because they need, you know, special services for X, Y, and Z? Well, maybe not, maybe mm-hmm. they're not taking into consideration that like their bias is, actually behind that. And this Hmm. child may have some needs, but they may not be um, needs from a disability. Hmm. And maybe it's a need that they feel, you know, certain type of way about being othered in a classroom or being Hmm. the only, perhaps the only child of class uh, of color in that Mm -hmm. classroom. Mm -hmm. So um, I think a lot of that is driven by the fact that like, Um, our teaching force needs to kind of examine those biases too. But from the parental standpoint of like, what can you do first? Well, those are the moments when you can step in and start to not just like have that internal questioning, but like say it out loud. Hmm. Have those conversations with your students or your, um, your child's teacher and say like, can you show me evidence of where this is happening or Um, when does that tend to happen? Because you are the parent of this child who spends way more hours with them and know them better than any of the teachers in that building are going to, right? And this is a collaborative trying to create relationship. And I think a lot of times um, teachers are also not um, driven by creating that relationship, right? There is this, there is the white supremacist idea of a teacher holds knowledge and that's who we need to trust. And I fully put trust in my own child's teachers. But at the same time, I know my child in a different way Hmm. than their teachers know them. So first step is asking the questions you'd say, like. Asking the questions of like, Hey, where, where are you seeing this? And kind of checking that with, Hmm, does this align with who I know my child is? Or is this a little bit different? And could could that be because of the environment of their classroom? Hmm. Could that okay. be because of perhaps the way they're talked to in their classroom? Um, or is there some, yeah, just to kind of unearth, like, is there something else going on here? Or does my child actually have a disability that we need to address? Mm-hmm. Because that that is also obviously a possibility, but we want to make sure that we're really looking at um, your whole child and thinking, is this happening because of other reasons or is this actually happening because they do have a special need here? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I think, I mean, with that knowledge of, you know, the percentage of how many kids, um, are misdiagnosed that you have to have that be your first step of like, okay, let's, let's, analyze this and um, I'm going to take a look at it and think through it. And, and that's great to know and kind of then where to move from there. So if you have, uh, you know, if you agree, or if it's something that you've suspected, what's the next step, do you think? 
So usually there's this process kind of before an IEP. An IEP is an individualized education plan. That's what your child would get if they did actually um, meet the requirements to get special education services. Um, but there's all these steps before that happens, okay. right? They actually have to, they do actually have to show documentation um, of formal assessment, informal assessment, observations. Um, if this is something that would need to, uh, for example, if it was like an ADHD concern where they're like, I think, you know, they, they show certain symptoms, then there might be some testing involved, right? Or um, if it's dyslexia, there would obviously be some mm -hmm. testing involved. Um, so all of those things would happen before um, an actual designation of special education would um, be would be placed on your child's file. And then if this actually were to get to the point where they have an individual education plan written for them, then at that from that point on, um, every year there would be meetings, like an entire team. So it would be your, the parent, typically a counselor, a school psychologist, the teacher, any like teacher aide that maybe is in contact with the child mm. quite a bit. Um, this whole team comes together and that's when you start to talk about an, on an annual basis, like what is your child showing? How, where are their improvements? Where are some places that this child needs to continue, you know, growing? Um, and that's where it becomes something that is as a part of their, um, I hate to use this word, but they're, they're labeling at school, mm. right? That's, that, that follows them. Um, but also in, on the positive side of that is that all their teachers from that point on will know that like they have these needs, mm -hmm. uh, and that, um, they need to differentiate their instruction for this child based on that. Hmm. That's interesting. So what, um, will you share for anyone that doesn't know, what's the difference between an IEP that you were just talking about? And then there's also a 504, um, I know, like, I've seen those terms before and been like, okay, which one is which? What is going on? <laughs> so for a parent who's never navigated this, what what are those things? Yeah, so um, this is going to be a very general and probably um, not great description, but I <laughs> That's <think> fine. <laughs> <laughs> we're all learning and we're all growing. Yeah. I like to think of... Um, 504 plans as like IEP light, if you will, yes. <laughs> only because typically when, if you don't qualify for SPED services um, and you don't get to that, that level of having to have an IEP written, then you do have the option to request a 504 plan for your child. Um, that means you and their teacher and you know, everyone who's been in this community of trying to figure out what is going on here have all determined that like, okay, this child doesn't qualify for an IEP, but perhaps some accommodations could still be helpful, right? And they clearly something is happening here that we still need to bolster up this kid with to help them grow. And so that 504 plan exists for any other accommodations that they'll need. And it's same thing, it, that 504 plan will follow them. Um, so the most common 504 uh, thing that I see is for testing. And a lot of this is typically because the kiddo doesn't do great with time constraints. My own child has that. Um, 
or um, they may need a more quiet environment to, in order to work on testing. Um, and so uh, this child might may be able to step out and work in the library when they do testing, or if um, there are times when they really need to focus in on a project, they have the option to have the accommodation to work with a person one-on-one -on -one outside of the classroom, or they may have um, just extra ways for them to be able to um, focus better in a way that like doesn't require an annual review, right? Okay. It's just something that they need in certain moments or certain projects or certain, you know, assessments they may be taking. Um, and so it's still accommodating to that child's needs, but it's not to the point where data-driven they do qualify based on the fact that they have a specific disability that requires um, <clears throat> any kind of annual review. Okay. <clears throat> that makes sense. And a, and a 504 follows them through college, doesn't it? I believe so. I yeah, that's so. very similar in the way that it follows yeah. them. Yeah, okay, that's great. And, and an IEP is, you know, a little bit deeper, goes a little bit deeper than that then. Yes, for sure. Okay. It has more of like a team behind it. Typically a 504 is more just you and the teacher communicating on what okay. those needs. Oh, that makes sense. That's great. Um, so we're backing up just a hair here, but um, if someone suspects, if you've maybe talked to a teacher or they've expressed concerns about your child and you don't agree with them and you suspect that maybe your child is actually experiencing um, racial bias, what should a parent do at that point? What's the best, what are those steps that they should be taking? Yeah, um, I would say the steps are very similar. Still trying to create that relationship with the teacher. And I say that again because teachers are not taught nor are they conditioned to create relationships with their families. They're mm -hmm. called parent-teacher conferences. I don't like that term. Yeah, <laughs> that's interesting, yeah. They should be family conferences. A, taking into account that not everybody has a parent coming to mm -hmm. their conference. Right. But really, we're thinking about who is this child in terms of their family. And so I say that because um, I think as parents, we have to advocate for that relationship because mm -hmm. it's not a norm for teachers to do it. Um, not excusing the fact that, you know, they're very busy people and they obviously are managing yes. more than one student, yes. right? So maybe that's not front of mind for them. I, I used to be in the classroom. It definitely wasn't front of mind for me, uh, but because your child is always gonna be front of mind for you as a parent, that's kind of your, your in to be able to like push for that relationship. And um, I, had a, I had a case where my own child was, um, I questioned whether mm. or not, something was racially driven and it was pretty clear that it it was um oh. and I I say that and that's for my own biological ch child who looks like me and mm -hmm. um I had the very same lived experience so it was it was a triggering moment for yeah. me um and I had a heightened awareness of it but I definitely had to kind of check the teacher in that moment and just say um, so I'll, I'll just give some detail around this so that you can understand the context, but the child, uh, my, my child's teacher had questioned, and this was only a couple months into school, whether or not, um, he needed ELL, English language learner, ELL services, um, because he spoke a different language at home. 
Really? Now, mind you, I had already checked that he didn't need those services. I had refused the services because I am a native English speaker. My husband is a native English speaker. I understand what ELL services are. I knew my child did not need it. Yes. His preschool teachers didn't even know he spoke a different language. They were so confused when I, like I said, I had a heightened awareness of it. Yes. So I entered in knowing he would possibly possibly be flagged for this. And so she, um, he was a little bit behind in reading and writing. And so she said, I just wonder if, you know, um, he could benefit from some ELL services. And right, right big, big trigger point for me, had to take a, quite a few big breaths to be able to, you know, enter into this conversation yes. with her. And I said, well, you know, I gave her all the background, the context of our family, why he wasn't in it since kindergarten. And I said, I would just, I'd be curious. Do you think he is just a low reader, which is very possible? Or do you think his low reading and writing um, scores are due to the fact that he speaks another language at home? I wanted to see if she could di differentiate between yes. the two. Um, and she said, well, there's no telling, <laughs> but... Um, I think that he could definitely benefit from some services. And I think that like ELL would serve those purposes the best. And so at huh. this point, I knew that I wasn't, I, she wasn't examining the bias there. And I had not told her that he spoke another language at home. She was somehow able to squeeze that information out of him. Interesting. Um, okay. Right. So that's that's where you're questioning. Is this racism? Is this discrimination? Because she didn't find it written anywhere. Um, but I had two choices at that moment. I could either have my test, my child tested, gone through all that because that's what the teacher recommended. Or I could just deny the the uh, t the testing and perhaps not get help for my child because I'm not, I wasn't trying to be prideful in like, my child doesn't need help. I recognized that he needed help. I just wasn't sure that that was the avenue he needed to get his help mm -hmm. through. And, or that right? that was the cause. If he was reading it at a lower level, that that was the cause of it, that he spoke right. two languages. <laughs> I, I would the appropriate help, yes. wherever, wherever know, that like, is, yes. The problem and get the appropriate help. So, um, I, I knew that I wanted to get him help and really sometimes you have to walk through the puddle to be able to like <laughs> get mm. to what, what you ultimately the goal is. Right. And I was like, I'm going to just have to step in this puddle. There's no way around it. And in that I kind of wanted, just going to be completely honest. It's like kind of wanted to mic drop it and say yeah. that. Like, I wanted to prove that this was not um, language. Yes. So I said, okay, you know what? Um, let's have him take the test. But before I have him take the test, I want this question answered. I'd like to know if he takes the test and he passes, um, what, will we, what will we do then? Where will we go at, this, at that point? 
Yes. Because we can't give him help through ELL then. I said, now, obviously, if he doesn't pass, he would get help through ELL. I've paid my taxes. I've, I've paid for her. Yes. You've paid for those services. Yes. You know, so sure, I'll take it. Um, and she said, well, at this point, and also the ELL teacher was sitting with us. She said, at this point, I don't think, I think that he'll qualify. Oh, really? Okay. Okay. Again, when you're asking these questions, like listen for the answer from the teacher or teachers in this case, and try to hear like, again, is there bias in this? Mm -hmm. Are they even trying to hear um, what they may be entering to this with? And again, that answer gave me exactly what I need to (laughs) confirm is that I don't think they're seeing that there's bias in this and that this is... um, potentially a sign of, of racism here, right? Yes. That there's well, language and here. I think it's great to note too, as you're telling this story, that never did you go after them with that phrasing. You didn't say, I think you're racially biased and that this is, you know, you were trying to take the appropriate steps, even though this was triggering to, like you said, just you knew you had to go through the puddle to like get to the other side. So you're going to buckle down, but um, you were asking questions, which I think is such a healthy um, perspective to take and something that's great, asking questions to find out what you needed to know, even though I think probably your hunch was correct at the beginning. But these, I love that those are the steps that you take took. And um, so what happened next? Because <laughs> I think the more you ask questions, the more or you um, have a chance to make that person think about yeah. why they, you know, made this decision. Too. Yes. Um, so he took the test, passed with flying colors, yeah. <laughs> as I suspected, and uh, did not get ELL services, which great. That's not what I wanted him to get anyways. But at that point, I just told the teacher, I said, well, I guess it looks like you'll have to be the one to help him get up to reading grade level and writing mm-hmm. grade level. Because I think to a certain extent, she just wanted um, to get external help there when really like she's responsible Hmm. for that. And um, that's another piece of the bias, right? Is that sometimes I think when a teacher sees that um, a child of, you know, especially if it's a child of color, if that bias is there, they may think like, oh, this is going to be a difficult child or this is going to because I've seen it happen, you know, and, and, and so to a certain extent, they just don't even want to deal with it. So it's like this passing off and mm. putting kids in sped can sometimes be a passing off. Like here, this is your job now, you know, or this is your responsibility. And I'm not trying to make teachers sound bad. I was one of them, you know, yeah. I work with them. I love them. It's just that it exists. Sometimes that mm-hmm. exists. And I think sometimes they're not aware of that. Yeah, Because, you know, as a teacher, yes, you have a lot on your plate. So sometimes you kind of want someone else to like, hey, can you help me with this? And I get it. But in this case, it was one of those where I just, I said exactly how I felt. And I said, well, it looks like you'll be the one helping him come up to grade level. And obviously I was doing my part as a parent, but like I wanted her to see that like you have responsibility here and you are going to be held accountable by me um, in knowing that, you know, I've given you the hard data now. It yeah. says he's passed and that is not the reason that he's he's behind in reading. Well, and I think that's huge too, even what you just said about the hard data. It's like, okay, 
I've I've done my part of this. Um, so that's another thing for people. If they have questions, you can go to your pediatrician. You can go to a behavioral specialist. You can. There are things that you can do to back yourself up or find out, oh, indeed, there is something else going on, which is okay. You can't, you can't dispute the facts. Yes, but you're you're on the same hunt for the facts that, that they are. And that's part of advocating for your child as well. You know, that, um, but you, yeah, you were able to do that. You knew you had to go through the puddle. You, that was, that's another form of advocacy so that it wasn't on your son's shoulders to deal with that in class. So, sure. What are some examples of how um, you can be ready to parent a racially different child and how, um, like I just mentioned, how can we take that weight off of our kids' shoulders? Because like you said, we do have to teach them how to advocate for themselves, but there's a huge part of that. Like we always tell our kids, all of our kids, um, like we're on your team. Like we are your backup. Like we're here for you. And sometimes when they're younger, that means that you are going ahead of them. So how does that look? How do we take that, that weight off? Yeah. I think especially when they're younger, because we can't expect that they're going to know. No, (laughs) they don't have the words to even express their own emotions to us sometimes. And that's where like that decoding as a parent oh, yeah. to come to even try to figure out what's going on with them. So yes, I think even more so when they're younger that you have to, you have to be the one to advocate because we just can't, we can't put that kind of weight on them when they're that little. Um, I think one of the biggest things is empowering them in a way that for them is unconscious. So looking at your sphere of influence, who are the people that your family is um, is surrounded by? Do they mm. see themselves reflected in? I mean, I know this is more of a concrete thing that you can do, but like, um, and I hear lots of people talking about like windows and mirrors. I'm sure some of you have heard this term, but like looking for books and media and so forth, like as yes. much of the, the, um, the things that you actually get give to your child, um, and are in your home that reflect them. Right. And I was just laughing with a friend, uh, a couple of days ago about how I, I was trying to look for a new nativity set because I'm like, I need a more accurate one. Yes. <laughs> but it's very difficult. It's like, hard. It takes, it takes yeah. a lot of work to find things that, and I feel like, especially for, um, in literacy, it's getting a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. There's definitely more BIPOC authors, BIPOC illustrators. And I'm, I'm finding that that is easier. So I just try to bring as much of that yep. as I can into my own home. Um, but those are all going to be unconscious to your child, right? This is just the environment we're trying to create for them so that they don't feel othered even in their own home. Mm-hmm. And then at like, who is their pediatrician? What does their pediatrician look like? Do they, do they have the same skin color as your child? Um, And in that, as we talked about bias earlier, will they be able to um, diagnose your child, you know, knowing those cultural and like racial things that can exist um, that perhaps um, a white doctor would not see, right, or be aware of. And so even looking at things like, um, do I have friends? Like, do I have friends that I invite over for, you know, summer barbecues that look like my child? And not to say that we should, in a very inauthentic way, find friends who look like our child just so they have that. Totally. But really, 
you should be entering into those kind of relationships in an authentic way because not only are they there just visibly for your child, but for you to culturally learn something that like they experience that you can't give to your child because of your own lived experience that didn't reflect that. Exactly. Yep. So I think those are things that, um, especially as they're young, they can't feel around them, but they don't know how to name yet. Mm-hmm. But I think as, as they get older, we'll start to be able to name like, oh, that's why I felt a certain way. Or that's why um, I felt okay saying that because I saw so-and-so saying that. Or yeah. I, you know, things like I think about my own journey in entering into education and wondering like, why are there so few teachers of color? And I realized that in talking to many teachers of colors is what I researched actually is that we didn't see ourselves. So we never saw that that was a possibility for us. Wow. Right. Like I never thought I could be a teacher because teachers didn't Didn't look look like like you. Right. But, and I didn't even realize and have that reflection until I became a teacher and I was teaching in Southeast Portland and it was, this like epiphany moment. I knew I always loved teaching, but I didn't have that like internal, like what was the seed? Mm. And a lot of my students in Southeast Portland were, were Chinese and they would come to me and say things like, Miss Yi, can you, can you talk to my dad about that? And I knew that there was just this like, oh, cause you know that I get it. Yep you know that I had your experience and like you have a disconnect with your own parent because in those cases, a lot of times it was like an immigrant experience versus a, you know, first generation here experience. And like, I don't, I don't want to do that, but can you, can you talk to, you know, and that was when it clicked for me. I was like, Mm. this, this is why we need teachers who reflect what the student population looks like. Yep because they need to be able to see themselves and have an advocate in seeing themselves there, you know? Yeah, that's powerful. And that's, I mean, that's exactly it. That's what people have been talking about for years of like seeing themselves and things. When you were talking, it made me think just today, I saw something on Instagram that there's a someone redrawing like um like medical pictures and medical books to see oh, people yes, of I color um uh-huh. like represented like and it it's just those moments where i was like oh yeah like you never see like a black mom and a black um you know child drawn <laughs> like in mm-hmm. medical books or in anything so even just those ways that it, you know you just notice like the world around you. And when, when I'm just a white person that, you know, is going along, I I didn't think of it and I'm more aware of it now, but it's just those pieces. And I love that you're saying to surround yourself with, um, with people that look like your child, because it is so important. They do offer you a different look at things, a different take, an explanation of why all, you know, all of these things. And they offer your child without them realizing it or needing that. They offer your child that too. And um, I think that's so huge just for all of us to hear and be intentional about and not in a fake way, but intentionally developing relationships. I think as adults, we're all guilty of like 
you know, when you're in school, you're, you become more, especially when you go to college, you become outward facing, you want to meet people and, and know people. And then you kind of like, as an adult, you hunker down, you're raising your kids, you're, you're trying and, and we need to go back to that piece of ourselves Mm -hmm. to go back to building relationships and um, being open to that. That's all that means. It's not like a fake friendship with someone, but just being open to developing, to talking to people, um, talking Mm -hmm. to parents at school, talking at games, talking to people that look different from you. That's just something we should all be doing no matter what. <laughs> and yeah. and hearing different opinions and perspectives that you would have never seen before. And and I just remember like one of my best friends, she she and I have known each other since sixth grade. She said to me that it was life-changing when um we were together in high school and we went to like Taco Bell or something. But the very first time she experienced racism through me like Mm. seeing me experience it and she's like I had never even even considered that that is what you go through because she she was so shocked that um I kind of just brushed it off and she was like that's not okay and I'm like no it happens so often that this is not worth it and she's like what yeah (laughs) no she's indignant for you like this isn't right. <laughs> Knowing that it happens so frequently, frequent, mm. you know, and your child is going to experience those things, and you're probably going to have a moment where you're like, "What?" Oh yeah, for sure. You're most likely going to have lots of moments. Yes. <laughs> just a heads up. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's um, true. Just, yeah, to, to be, yeah, just to have have someone else tell you hey, this happens all the time, or hey, this is how it is. And and just being there to listen and learn from that and saying, I had no idea. Yep. I'm going to do better because now that I know, yes. I'm going to do better for my child now that I know this is probably something they'll experience. That they're going to experience, yeah. If they haven't already and just not even shared it with you, they're going to. <laughs> so, yeah. Exactly. So what resources um, are out there to help navigate, uh, navigate, I can't even talk, Sarah, navigate what our children's rights are when it comes to their education? Yeah. So OSPI, for those of you living here in Washington state, OSPI is a great resource for um, exactly what the law says, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's where um, they lay out, especially their their in the past couple of years, their equity um, piece of their website has become um, a really great resource because they actually offer, and I want to say it's, I think it's monthly, they have these equity sessions and each month they do a different topic. Um, so that's a great resource to be able to even watch like past ones and exactly um, how... I think I remember watching one that was about um, how indigenous communities, even just like the labeling of what their race is, Mm. um, is, is very defining within their community, um, whether it's uh, Native American or American Indian, like there's distinctions. So things like that, that um, I think are not really brought into the general space. They, yes. they're having really great conversations in that. And then of course, you know, anything related to special education, it's all laid out there so that you can see exactly um, what is required once they do have an IEP. Um, I'm sure every school district, or I'm sorry, uh, state 
so for example, in Oregon, it's TSPC. Um, every state's like basically the the resource that teachers go to get, to go get their license. Oh, okay. Um, so that website is always going to provide you with like the state's resources and laws and everything that's like That's written. great. And um, if they were Googling something, like if they live in another state you didn't reference, what would you have them Google? I think um, a lot of times you it's easiest just to say like state teacher licensure. Okay. And then click on whatever that link is. It'll take you to like their state's um, OS version of OSPI. Okay, that's great. No, that's huge. And then you can kind of take a look and see what you're dealing with statewide and what, what options are out there. And I love, at least for OSPI, that they have videos that you can be watching and kind of catch yourself up on things because that can feel the most overwhelming. You you Google something and you're like hit with so many resources or blogs or whatever, but to know exactly for your state what options you have. I think that's huge. And they're all different. It's, it's completely different <laughs> state yeah, by state. There's so much like legal jargon involved in that too. But, but you know, I, I used to work in ed tech where um, uh, I w- dealt with like alternative learning schools and things like that, that you just, you can't know all of these things. All no. The time. There's no way. So um, especially with how like detailed things are and how much they change and so forth. So I think your best resource is to look at like your state's education department um, for exactly what is going to be provided and then also what their rights are. That's huge. Yeah, that's great. Well, I'm going to wrap us up here. I feel like we have a whole nother podcast in the works (laughs) because this is such a huge topic. And I know a lot of um, families that listen to this podcast are going through these things right now. And I so appreciate you being willing to come on and share even your personal story, what you've you know, experienced yourself as a child, what your family experienced, what your son experienced, and um, and just your expertise in that this is what you do and what you've studied. And um, it, I think there's something affirming in that, just knowing um, that people aren't crazy or that they're not, that may, they need to trust their gut, especially parents. I think my biggest learning as a parent, as my kids have aged, is like exactly what you said. You know your child the best. Um, If you have a sneaking suspicion that something's off, like follow that trail, ask those questions. And I so appreciate even that you just put that out there because I think it gives people permission to do that if they're questioning themselves. So thank you. Thank you for coming on. It's important to question those things because why are we questioning those things? Is it because I I do buy into the idea that only the teacher holds the knowledge? And that's not true. You just hold a different type of knowledge as a parent. And that's a huge piece of who your child is. Yeah. And turning your ch- your child's teacher into an advocate too. You, you know, that's something that you have the power to, to start moving into that realm of things for them. Most of the time, I think not every time, I think sometimes it's just not going to be a great relationship. But hopefully, you know, giving teachers the benefit of the doubt. And I think teachers really, most teachers out there are trying to um, do that. We've experienced, you know, at different levels, like some differences there. But, you know, I think giving everybody the benefit of the doubt and then helping them become an advocate for your child and building that family family relationship instead of, um, you know, just having, I love that the parent-teacher conference thing, that this is a family conference, not, and that we're, we're all, a part of this. So thank you, Sarah. I so appreciate you. 
You're welcome. I'm glad we got a chance to talk and uh, I hope we get to talk some more about this because like you said, it's there's so much. There's so much to it. So much. Yeah, if you're teaching a year long teacher course, <laughs> then we've got a lot, a lot further to go, but I think this is a great start. I hope that you enjoyed hearing from Dr. Sari Yee and that you got as much out of that as I did. I definitely think that we're going to need to invite her back and do a follow-up podcast as we really just touched the surface. Thank you so much for listening to Together by AGCI. If you liked what you heard, please make sure to follow us and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at All God's Children or head to our website for more information on all the work that we do at allgodschildren.org. I look forward to learning more and sharing stories of hope the next time we're together.